Welcome everyone to a brand new podcast focused on Peds Sports. My name is Carter Clement from Children's Hospital of New Orleans, and I am part of a team that has been working on this show throughout the last year. We are very excited to finally bring it to you. This is a podcast for those pedipods who focus on sports medicine as well as adult sports surgeons who take care of some kids. Plus, we're going to try to have a little something for everyone, so hopefully trainers, therapists, residents, PAs, and PEs, and students can all listen and learn something. Our goal is to keep you up to date on the latest ped sports literature during your commute, at the gym, on a walk, or wherever you listen. We'll comb through all the journals that occasionally have ped sports research so you don't have to. We'll find the most relevant articles, summarize them, and discuss them with a panel of surgeons from across the country. In some episodes, we'll have authors join us for interviews as well as trying some other formats. Today, we've got a panel of surgeons I'm excited about, including Cordelia Carter from NYU, Pam Lang from Wisconsin, Dominic Gargiulo, also down here in New Orleans with me, and Dax Varkey in North Carolina, who brings us a valuable perspective as an adult sports surgeon who also takes care of children. As I mentioned, we've been recording throughout 2020, so we've got several episodes lined up that will be coming out soon. Today's show was actually recorded at the end of September. Lastly, before we get into the content, a special thank you to POSNA, the Pediatric Orthopedic Society of North America, for a grant that helped us get this off the ground. As you will hear, we'll be trying various ideas and working to improve our content and the sound quality. So bear with us through the learning curve and reach out anytime with feedback or suggestions. You can write to us at peds.sports.ortho at gmail.com. So with that, let's get into it. So we were going to basically try to keep things really casual and just sort of chat about a bunch of recent articles. They're all brand new, all e-publications. We've got three out of JPO. They're all EPUBs ahead of print, so brand new, and they're all about PED sports. So the first one is called ACL Growth with Age in Pediatric Patients, an MRI study, and it's out of Children's National in D.C., so something good is coming out of D.C. these days. And the authors looked at children without ACL tears. All of them had at least two MRIs for reasons other than the ACL, and they basically just measured the way the ACL grew over time. And they found, not super surprising, that it grows faster at young ages and grows slower at older ages. It gets wider basically until you're 18, but stops getting deeper when you're about 14. And then they found that the ACL becomes a little more vertical with growth, especially towards the end of growth, because it moves back a little bit on the, uh, the tibia. I guess that doesn't mean we should start putting in vertical ACLs in the older patients. And then the authors concluded that this will help providers predict normal ACL size for reconstructions. Of course, assuming here, but I don't think the graft is going to be growing, so I'm probably going to keep putting in adult-sized grafts and then every, everyone um, who's close to adult size anyway. What do you guys think? Is this going to, going to change any practice? I doubt I it'll change anything. Part of me wonders if what the um, kind of reference point was for measuring how anterior, posterior, and the tibia it was, because if you think of like the cartilage on log, you know, there's more bone that forms anteriorly then. And so are you measuring it from the very center of the notch or are you measuring it from the front? Does that make sense? Yeah, so maybe that ends up being the same place once everything ossifies anyway. Yeah, it's relative in the same kind of initial cartilage anatomy, but as that cartilage turns to bone, it starts looking more posterior on MRI anyway. Yeah, that makes sense for why it would start to look more vertical. Yeah. It at least made me feel better that if you do like an over-the-top technique and tack it to the very front of the, the tibia, maybe that's a little more accurate in those young kids. Right. 
I don't think it would change my tunnel placement at all. I don't think I'd be changing my aiming. So are you guys from the true peds world? If you have a medium sized kid, so I'm, I'm in my mind, in my practice, I see some handful of younger patients, but if you have a 13 year old boy who still has plenty of growth left, are you putting in, I don't know how to quantify this later. Are you putting in a 10 millimeter graft? Are you like in adults, I'm putting in 10 millimeter graphs when possible. If it's a small female, I'm putting in a nine. I usually use BTB. Uh, so are you guys downsizing your graphs? I mean, you don't want to overstuff the notch. I'm really not. I'm, you know, if it's soft tissue going across the physis, then uh, I'm happy to have a, a big graft in there. And I mean, I think I think of it more in terms of the patient's body size than the knee. And I guess you don't know how big they're going to end up being. But if it's like a really big 13-year-old who looks like he's going to be a really big 18-year-old in a few years, I'd like to have a, a really big graft to support their body. Whereas if it's a, a much smaller patient, maybe I'm okay with a smaller graft. But yeah, that's how I think about it. I think it's a little challenging too, because a 13 year old boy, there's a pretty good chance I'm doing a physeal sparing IT band to kind of technique. You don't yeah. cross the, uh, the physis in a 13 year old? Uh, I mean, it depends what their bone age is like. Yeah. But, you know, if it's the typical where you're expecting more than two years, my preference would be to do an IT band. I've been happy with them. So if they've got two years at least, that's what I'm going towards. I was surprised how stable after that IT band that they, they seem to be more stable. That's such a wispy little graft, but it somehow it holds. It's one of those that um, I always feel like it looks pretty big in their knee though. You know, like I, I think you, your graft should fit the knee size. So, I mean, if you're doing something on a really young kid and you're doing a soft tissue graft, I mean, some of those kids an eight looks gigantic. Yeah, totally. And, you know, risk of arthrofibrosis will go up with a millimeter of increase in graft size. So I think there truly is a an, an concept of overstuffing. So all the studies that talk about an eight millimeter graft, my argument has always been none of them have been like truly pediatric studies. And I don't know, like part of me thinks that um, he's been taught graft placements and, and poor tunnel placement is the number one reason for a graft to fail. But it's hard to me, for me to believe that a half a millimeter difference in your graft size is going to be the like, you know, if you have a seven and a half versus an eight, like that's going to be what's devastating to you. Yeah. If you, and, and if you think of a small knee front to back, if you're trying to put a 10 in someone who has a tiny knee, you're by default anteriorizing your femoral tunnel, posteriorizing your tibial tunnel, and you're making your graph more vertical just to get a bigger tunnel, right? So I don't know. And I don't know the answer to that, but it's what I always think about. What do you think, Cordia? Uh, I think my highlights on this would be, I don't think this paper is going to change what I do. I I personally don't do BTBs and skeletally immature kids. I agree with Pam's. I really do think oftentimes the graft fits the knee, although the exception of that is we've all seen the like, really wispy hamstrings that you know you get them and you're like this is just never going to do it and so actually what i've changed is the grass so when i do all soft tissue which is what i will use for a skeletally mature kid um well, like, actually i use this for skeletally mature kids as well but i'll use the partial thickness quad tendon so i've got my soft tissue i've got my like reliably good biomechanics i've got my reliably good tissue size i think um you know i put a 10 and a half in an adolescent like a 14 year old boy last week and it felt awesome and i didn't feel like i'd overstuffed it and i was like this is great this is really gonna 
you know, get him back to football, which is what he wants to do. So I guess the answer is I, I generally shoot for an eight to 10 because I think less than eight, I'm worried it's going to fail. I, I don't worry too much in an adult sized person or a near adult sized person about overstuffing it. But I also think I did an ACL reconstruction in a three-year-old and I just generally took, this was for a syndroma kid with a congenital absence, but then I just take the central two thirds. And so I generally do think that their anatomy and we're almost always going to choose autograft and a kid. Like I generally think their anatomy is going to be the right thing if you pay attention to it. Yeah. yeah. That'd be an interesting one for some MRI follow-up. See if that graft changes size as the three-year-old grows. Right. But those, yeah. I mean, that, that the quote McKaylee, uh, you know, technique was really devised for or designed for the congenitally absent ACL and like the five-year-old. And this is what I always tell my patients, you know, the, the whole plan initially was, well, heck, we're going to come back and revise these when you're able to have an adult type reconstruction. And then what we found, and, and this has been, you know, demonstrated over time is that we haven't needed to do that. And so you're right. Do we actually know that the graft grows with them? I don't know that I actually know that, but it seems to do the trick in, in a long-term way. You never totally take away its blood supply when you do that technique. Like you keep the IT band on Gerties. You've never completely devascularized it. So part of me has always wondered if um, one of the reasons that technique seems to have done better maybe than what we initially thought is it goes through this process of ligamentization, uh, maybe a little bit better. So that's another one of my theories I can't prove yet. So. I'm like you, Pam. I will push the indications for that surgery a little bit later than other people yeah. will. Because the truth is, we haven't figured out ACL reconstruction in kids, right? The, re the retear rate is so high. The contralateral tear rate is so high. But so if you know that you have a, such a high retear rate, why not at least do a surgery where you haven't burnt any future grafts, you haven't made tunnels that you're going to have to revise. And it's got as good of a long-term track record as a lot of the stuff that we do in the adult world. So I will push the indication yeah. for an iliotibial band autograft, you know, five steel sparing ACL as well. For sure. I, um, I had one last week in a 15 year old girl who was a congenital deficiency. So again, congenital deficiency, that's my go-to. They've already got small everything else. So take something that they can spare a little bit better. And I'm always impressed by at 15 and being a female, her periosteum was still great. No issues at all. But if I have any concerns, I'll back those up with an anchor now too. So. Yeah, that's great. All right. Well, why don't we jump to uh, another article? Another one out of JPO, delays in obtaining knee MRI in pediatric sports medicine, impact of insurance type. This one is out of Pam's alma mater at the Orthopedic Institute for Children at UCLA, and it's by uh, Dr. Jennifer Beck et al. And the authors basically said, look, there's more children with various Medicaid plans recently. There's more kids doing sports, so there's more kids having uh, sports injuries and needing MRIs. So is this all a bad combination? And they basically found that the wait time between when you order an MRI and when you get it done was nine days in commercially insured patients and 17 days in Medicaid insured patients. Needless to say, that's very concerning. As I'm not, I don't know that I can say it's all that surprising. As the authors say, um, it's likely multifactorial, so we don't want to jump to too many conclusions. A lot of patients, that's fine, and in a handful, that's potentially detrimental. 
and um, maybe uh, Medicaid providers should be held accountable for that. Is this is this consistent with what you guys are seeing in your practices? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> My takeaways from this one are, uh, this is a disparity in medicine, right? It's access to care. We know that, you know, public or no insurance, you, you see lags in, in specialty care. The reason why, and in fact, there was a study, I think it was in, I want to say it was out of, um, it was in Ohio, I want to say around the Cleveland area that actually looked at public versus private. They showed that with the same script, a 14-year-old boy needing an ACL uh, reconstruction surgery, the, if the office was told it was public insurance, the wait time was significantly more or sometimes like they didn't even get in, even though it was a surgical problem. And so the reason that this is an issue is because, you know, as we know, there's a lot of data that tells us that the time from injury to surgery is also associated with meniscal tears, cartilage injury. That's exactly and then, right. And these are, the, these are the things that then set in motion like a spiral of a rap, more rapid progression to osteoarthritis. And so these, then that results in really like long-term dysfunction and disability. So to yep. me, that's, that's why this is such an important paper. Hey man, I'm not sure you were talking about the order to complete. Am I order to completion nine versus sixteen days? Man, yeah. that doesn't. That, I don't really. That doesn't seem like a big deal to me. But from first visit to MRI completion, eleven to forty days, you know, a month in between. That's where the things you know can start to happen. I mean, usually kids are pretty not. If they have a serious injury, they're not out there playing on. You know, uh, uh, if they have a torn ACL, they're probably not out on the playground. Um, but obviously, the disparity is a big deal. I mean, maybe they are. I don't know. Some. I kids think if it's a month. Yeah. yeah, they are. The, the, ACL, the ACL tears stop hurting pretty quick. So they're not limited by pain. And, and if they can walk off that instability, in my experience, they're going to. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. And, and I think um, what, what this one didn't really comment on was the timing from injury to when they got a first visit. Oh, yeah. And to me, that's that's a big part of it, too. And um, having spent a year with these folks, um, it was rare to have somebody who actually got in uh, to see someone who would order the MRI pretty quickly. And then it was also strange to have isolated ACL tears. I definitely took care of more meniscal pathology my year there than what I had experienced like prior to that with ACL injuries where there's like a little quicker turnaround. So I think those are all things. It did surprise me a little bit that there wasn't a significant difference in findings, positive findings. Right. Yeah. Because um, I was surprised there weren't more meniscal injuries actually in the delayed group. But I again I think this study has been in some ways done with kind of every subspecialty, every injury pattern, fracture pattern kind of thing. But it's just more evidence for the uh, disparity there. How are you guys, uh, just for you know, bigger picture for the med students and residents, how are you making a decision? Who gets the MRI from the first visit versus who goes to PT? Obviously with like big findings on, you know, positive Lockman or instability, something like that. But sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, you get them in the first couple of days, they're all puffy and swollen. It's sometimes difficult to get a good physical exam. You know, sometimes there's, there's that delay just from the, the PT standpoint. Oh, you have to go get a month of PT or a few visits before the MRI will even be approved on a lot of insurances. I think um, for a lot of my book, an acute traumatic knee effusion is enough to order an MRI. Um, there's pretty good data showing there's like almost two thirds of them essentially will have some kind of ACL pathology. So, um, yeah, tell yeah. Them, you know, two thirds to three quarters. 
And if it's not yeah. getting jealous, it's an osteochondral fracture, you know, it's exactly. something else. Something real. Um, but I always start with x-rays. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the study, it's not quite the same, but uh, what I would love to see is the study repeated in um, incarcerated kids, because we, we see a lot of those here, and uh, it is a battle. It's, it's months to get them to get them the MRI, to get them into surgery. And, uh, you know, if we think this delay might make some difference, I, I, I think that population's really having a yeah. lot of second, yeah, totally anecdotal, but uh, it looks to me like they're having a lot of secondary injuries and uh, longer delays. Yeah. Although it's hard because that's also a population who may have a hard time getting into adequate physical therapy post-op as well. Absolutely. So if, you know, if, they're, if, if you're going to do the surgery, you want to make sure that you can, you know, you can get the outcome, the desired outcome. That would be something else to look at though, because, you know, depending on what your government insurance allows for therapy, I mean, some kids get four visits post-ACL and that's all they get, right? And so, I mean, it's just, it's all over the board. It's from pre-op to all the post-operative care too. All right. Well, let's go to uh, JPOB. We had some uh, Pete Sports type <coughs> articles recently. Um, so this one out of Rady Children's Hospital is um, about hip scopes. I don't think we have anyone on the line doing a lot of hip scopes, but I think we all see patients with hip pain. So it's relevant for everyone. It is called acetabular labral tears in the adolescent athlete. And it's the results of a graduated management protocol from therapy to arthroscopy. And basically, this is part of that group's ongoing work to try to figure out how do you best manage this challenging population with this uh, sometimes vague hip pain. And specifically, um, they started with physical therapy, and they had previously published a great protocol, just sort of as an aside. It's in an AJSM article, and I print it out and give it to patients to take to their therapists all the time, both for uh, impingement and just for some symptomatic instability with mild or even moderate dysplasia. That's available free on their webs on the AJSM website and the supplemental material. And um, then if those patients in this study didn't get better with PT, then they went on to get a steroid injection. If they didn't get better there, they graduated to arthroscopy. And overall, it worked pretty well. About a third went on to need surgery. And in all three of those groups, the non-op, the injection, and the uh, surgery groups, about 80% of them got better, got significantly better. To me, this is awesome because it really gives a clear sort of pathway for these patients. The bad part is I still have no idea if the labral tear was really relevant because only two patients in the study had an isolated labral tear. Everyone else had a cam or a pincer or both, and those were all also treated. So I, I love this study in terms of giving sort of a concrete plan for these um, impingement patients, but I still don't know if the labral tear is what really, really mattered or not. So I've, I sort of signed off on um, most of the hip arthroscopy once I got to my practice, but at least when we were going through patients, when I see them pre-op, essentially, before I send them to one of my partners who does hip scopes, this is pretty, I mean, it's pretty typical. It sounds, it's nice to have it validated in the pediatric population as well, but in the young adult population, I think we stick to the same sort of protocol as well. You know, I heard this paper presented, and to me, the biggest takeaway from it was that it's a mistake to progress quickly to operative treatment for adolescents with what we suspected, you know, femoral tabular impingement and or labral pathology. That, in fact, a lot of them can do well for a long time without surgery. So to me, that was the takeaway, and that if you do your due diligence and you progress them through the protocol and you haven't made them better, then like, that's the kid who it makes sense to say, listen, you've tried, you know, this is what I see. It correlates with your symptoms. We've tried everything else. And so now the risks of surgery seems to make more sense in the like risk benefit analysis. But 
to me, I really liked that this was a, this didn't argue against our hip arthroscopy as a treatment. It just said, make sure that your indications are very tight and that you've sort of exhausted all other options, especially in the adolescent population. I agree uh, a lot with that. I've been general, more conservative with hip arthroscopy. Uh, and because of that, don't do a ton of it. And part of me thinks it's because people are actually getting a little bit better by doing the therapy stuff and with or without an injection. You know, I've had a couple people go through long roads uh, with therapy, but not even have an injection and get a little bit better. I think biggest questions are how long does it last? And are you changing anything negatively for their long-term outcome? Uh, those are some of the things I don't think we totally know, but, um, you know, if someone's doing well and asymptomatic, why change something? So are you going to injections for those patients after, uh, after a course of PT? If they need it. Yeah. You know, and that's one of those things, too, where from an injection standpoint, I struggle a little bit because I feel like so many of these kids on their exam have so much, like, psoas irritability. Yeah. Um, and so I've tended to be in favor of starting more with like psoas bursa stuff uh, or an injection into the psoas bursa, mm -hmm. um, like tendon sheaths. Because part of me wonders if, you know, something that they're doing mechanically is forcing them to just really like overcompensate using their psoas and not use their glutes. Like if we can fix that, can we make it so they're, they're not symptomatic anymore? So I've tended to start there on younger people. Um, and I don't know if it's part fear of not wanting to do a lot of steroid injection intraarticularly. And I think you have to be a little careful if you're doing arthrograms because the arthrogram dye is volume. I think it can be a little bit irritating. So somebody who's getting an injection along with an arthrogram for one reason or another, depending on what the standard is at your institution, like I don't think that's a great measurement tool for pain relief or not. So are you doing those uh, psoas tendon sheath injections um, in the OR, or are you having them go to radiology? Radiology, typically ultrasound. And totally anecdotally, have you been happy with it? I have been. You know, I think anybody who's treated FAI in hip patients, you're always going to have those really difficult ones that aren't happy. But it seems to be a good strategy in terms of the kind of stepwise progression in your treatment for this problem. Yeah, agreed. All right, well, um, here's another one from JPOB recently called Stable Childhood OCLs of the Talus. The short-term radiographic outcomes uh, suggest risk for early arthritis. It's another one out of Rady in uh, San Diego. And basically, the authors looked at a bunch of stable OCLs. They were all treated with retrograde drilling through the talus. And about a quarter of the patients had radiographic evidence of worsening arthritis over just the next year. So the authors were very concerned about this, especially over that short time period. Um, they found that the progression was more likely in the medial lesions. Um, and as we know, the medial OCLs are more likely to be that sort of OCD variety rather than a osteochondral fracture traumatic variety. Um, and it was more common in the older patients. You know, they didn't have any definitive recommendations in the paper, just that we likely really haven't found the ideal treatment for these and, and we should keep looking. You know, this is a treatment strategy I like. You know, if you put the camera in there and it's stable, do uh, retroarticular drilling through the talus. You know, I don't think this is enough to change doing that because I don't have a better solution. Does anyone have different uh, approaches to this or is that what everyone's doing if you, if you put the camera in there and things look okay? 
That's what I would do. I think um, Taylor OCD, OCLs are, uh, unless it's the like acute traumatic uh, lateral sided one, I think these medial, what fit more like an osteochondritis dissecans picture. Yeah. I've never been really happy with treatment. Like I think they all just do crappy and out of the kids in my practice who have had like CRPS or something like that, Taylor OCDs, scope drilling is like a risk factor for CRPS in my practice. (laughs) (laughs) I would just say, I think, you know, anything that adds to our understanding of an osteochondral lesion of the talus, like a juvenile, a truly juvenile one is good because the literature is so mixed. And it's so hard to actually call salient, I think, information about like to apply to your patients to make a reasonable treatment algorithm. But Pam, I agree with you. I mean, this is, this is one of my least favorite diagnoses to make because I think, I, I think achieving excellent outcomes is difficult. But I, I also agree. I mean, like this is the correct, this, this treatment makes sense and is the accepted like gold standard treatment, right? You have a stable osteochondral lesion that is not healing well, we want to improve the blood supply and this is how we're going to do it. And, and then, I mean, I guess if you look back and say, well, I, I haven't read this one admittedly, but you know, is, is there, did anything about my surgery cause or accelerate the arthritis? I mean, if you're really doing retrograde rather than transarticular, it seems like that, it seems like not really. So it has to have something to do with the disease process, which as I said, I mean, I just think it's poorly understood. What, what's your uh, just sort of general approach to these patients? If you see one in clinic, you know, when do you jump into the MRI? How long are you keeping them non-weight bearing? How long are you going to sort of carry them along until you go to surgery? Well, for me, I'll do an MRI early because I think, the, I mean, the, the MRI really helps you prognosticate and, and decision make. So an MRI is one of the first steps, I think, once you've made the diagnosis. And then it's all about, you know, size, uh, whether or not they're skeletally immature, whether or not the lesion is stable that helps you make. I mean, I pretty much extrapolate what I can from the knees. I think that's what we understand the best. But, but as I said, I mean, I just think, uh, I, I think that some of these just don't do well, just like Pam said. Yeah. I, I usually do the same thing, treat them like the knee and, you know, I'll keep them non-weight bearing and then limit their activities and basically keep them relatively shut down for about three months often before I'll, I'll go to anything else. Is, is, are people doing more or less than that routinely? I think it depends on their, on their response, right? I mean, I think if you shut them down and they're clinically improving and either the lesion is stable or improving, then to me that says, great, the plan is working. We're going to stick with the plan. You know, if you've done that and you, and you really feel like they've been compliant with the protected weight-bearing status and the activity modification and they really haven't improved, then to me at some point, and I think three months is reasonable. Some people might say six. Uh, you know, at some point you have to say, this plan is not working. We have to change the plan. Exactly. The age might play a role too in how long you're willing to wait, right? Like skeletal maturity, you're probably doing it maybe right away, just like you would kind of knee. The other thing that I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but um, I feel like x-ray or imaging findings don't always correlate with symptoms. Totally agree. You know, like yep. some of these you find totally out of the blue because you're getting x-rays for a different reason, right? And then do you treat those or not? I think I have a little more like nihilistic approach to Taylor OCD lesions where if they symptomatic I almost don't care what the x-ray looks like and I don't know if that's right or wrong but uh, I I just feel like you can get some of these kids feeling better and their x-rays never look normal Um, and some of the kids that I've had that have hurt the most are the ones with like 
the most benign looking x-rays are the ones that actually show like some kind of improvement. So I feel like compared to a knee, uh, I'm a little more based like treatment based on symptoms rather than like pure imaging alone. But yeah, we were laughing because uh, I just had one I scoped on Friday and it was it was a, a tibial fracture and we found it totally incidentally and then I started talking to him. He's like, oh yeah, my ankle hurts pretty much every day and it, it clicks and yeah. catches sometimes. <laughs> Yeah, you know, one thing that I, I thought was sort of a hard decision point in the surgery, though, we, you know, we got in there and the cartilage was all intact, but it was soft. Sometimes I think it's hard to decide how soft is too soft. Should we have just left that sort of intact cartilage and just drilled it? It was soft enough that I was able to sort of, and this is my test, I sort of just poked it with the probe hard enough, then it sort of, you know, delaminated the cartilage. So did microfracture instead of, um, instead of retroarticular drilling. You know, that, I think that's one of the sort of decision points that I haven't heard too much written about is sort of, you know, once you look at it, sometimes it's not totally obvious if it's, if it's stable or unstable, like it, you know, like it looks like in those little decision trees in the papers. Does anyone have any sort of approaches to, to making that decision when you're looking at it or just pushing on it with a probe? I, I, it's a good question. You know, I think uh, it's more straightforward if there's something you can get your probe under really easily um, versus if it's intact, but really squishy. And I think what we don't know is like how aggressive do you probe, and yeah. you know what's gentle to me might not be gentle to you. Uh, yeah. So I don't think there's a great measure of that. But um, although at some point, if you're there, it's because they've like failed every other exactly decision making. And so I, I know I, I think if your probe, uh, I mean, we know what normal cartilage feels like. And so, and presumably yeah. also you've got like some sort of area of demarcation where it doesn't feel normal and that correlates with your MRI findings, which then correlates with their clinical symptoms. And so if you're there to treat it, I would treat it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I guess the, the question with me is if it's a little bit soft, probably going to treat it with retroarticular drilling. If it's a lot soft, I'm going to treat it with curatage and microfracture. And if it's somewhere in between, I'm and then scratch my head and make a decision. Sounds like it sounds like the the Clement algorithm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Stay tuned. Coming out in the literature shortly. <laughs> Level five evidence. Um, <laughs> all right. So let's move on to uh, another journal, JCO, Journal of Children's Orthopedics. There was one sports related. It um, came out recently. Um, I had a print. And it's called preoperative mental health status is a significant predictor of postoperative outcomes in adolescents treated with hip preservation surgery. I was out at TSRH and they apparently have the benefit there of having an integrated program where they have a psychologist see uh, all the hip preservation surgery patients before surgery. This was mostly PAOs, but also some uh, pre-op surgical hip dislocations and arthroscopies. And they found that if you have worse pain before surgery or if you have worse mental health scores before surgery, it predicts worse pain uh, after surgery. Conveniently, they found not only sort of a risk factor, but also a potential intervention. They found that the patients that saw a psychologist at least twice before surgery improved more than the others with uh, post-op pain and mental health scores. So the authors suggest that if you don't have a psychologist in clinic at all times, like most of us, it's probably worthwhile to consider at least having some brief screening survey or something that you can look at 
And then for the patients who seem to have maybe a little bit of out of proportion pain or concern for uh, mental health scores, then you can refer them to a psychologist to be seen before surgery. So I guess you know, my first question for everyone, is anyone working with a sports psychologist or ped psychologist on a regular basis in their practice? Definitely uh, not in the private world. Well, <laughs> we have a health psych and pain psych uh, through either the pain clinic or sports medicine health psych that are available. But for the most part, they see like 12 and up. So not necessarily available for like younger patients. So Andrea Spiker is kind of the one who does most of the hip preservation at Wisconsin. And uh, we've talked numerous times about how so many patients would benefit from some kind of like evaluation and it's more of a coping skills thing how to make that happen this is nice because it gives us like evidence to say why it might be an important part of it but you know the interesting thing here is they they talked about two visits was better than one or people who had two visits did better than people with one visit i'm like it's a fight to even get one visit and it's not necessarily all based on availability of resources some of it is based on the patients like refusing to do it which i think is a red flag right there but in this instance with all these patients they bought into it they did it and you know i guess people who buy into it more are willing to go back and do a second visit and to me that shows like you're proactive in your care and Maybe that's part of why they seem to do a little bit better because they took ownership over it. But it's a problem, I think. <laughs> we got to figure out a better way of dealing with it. I think if it's standardized, maybe it would be better. Otherwise, people feel like they're being attacked and being told they're crazy. So, Exactly. That was my biggest takeaway. If you've got a sports psychologist in your clinic who can just walk into the room and talk to them, that's, you know, that's great. I'm, I bet that would help with a lot of patients. But it's not easy telling someone that you want to refer them to, to psychology. Yeah, I had um, to do it today. I, uh, last week, <laughs> I referred someone yeah. for conversion disorder, yeah. and it you know took 45 minutes, and they left angry at me. Yeah. You know, it's a, <laughs> a really hard conversation. Yeah. So I think there's, unfortunately, a big difference between referring someone to a sports psychologist and having an integrated team in your clinic who can just walk in the door. For sure. I would say... Um, I mean, we see, I th we see these findings play out throughout the sports literature, right? I mean, there's a lot with ACL on return to play. And if you have more self-reported fear or less self-efficacy, you're more likely to have a poor outcome. I mean, I think, I really think this is what we're, what we're all going to be looking at, especially with ACLs as we say, well, gosh, we've honed our, we've honed our technique. We're working on rehab. And I think this is like the next piece of rehab after surgery to work on. But I think one barriers definitely are, I mean, most of the sports psychologists I know are private only or cash only. And so it's virtually impossible to get kids in. But I think in terms of getting them interested, especially like post injury, you know, this isn't about you have a mental disorder. This is about how can we optimize your mental health? And just like Pam was saying, like, how can we optimize your coping skills? Like if you're somebody who catastrophizes, and this is probably what they're identifying, right? Like the catastrophizers who maybe could use a little bit of cognitive behavioral therapy so they can sort of learn skills to manage that like fear and anxiety when they're feeling pain and so they can have a better outcome. But you know, I, if, that's, gosh, if that's something that we can do in our regular clinics, that'd be awesome. But until then, I think just as Pam was saying too, like building an argument for why it's important and why it should be covered is at least, you know, is the first step. Yeah, I agree. That's great. I think if you can have everybody doing it so it normalizes it, you know, that I think people would be more willing to buy into that 
that's just part of the deal. I, so. I like to, I mean, especially with, again with an ACL injury, but if, if you're going to have a hip scope or a big hip, you know, surgery, it's, you have to mourn the loss of your season, right? I mean, in normal mm -hmm. times, like right, I mean, this is what we're dealing with kids all over the place right now, just with COVID, but you have to, it's, it's truly like a pro it's a loss. It's a loss of your athlete identity. It's a loss of your season. You know, it's all these things that are normal and expected. It's not abnormal. There's nothing wrong with you. This is like what we see. This is what we see all the kids seeing. And I think the next thing to do too, is to really start to have more grassroots, like connect kids, just like they do with scoliosis, like connect kids with ACL injuries or hip arthroscopies or whatever it might be. So they can sort of learn from each other and support each other. But it, it's, it's, as you say, it's about normalizing it, but it is normal. Like what they're experiencing yeah. is normal. And it's just it's sort of making them understand that they might need extra help. It's not just physical therapy. I find myself bringing it up more and more to people. Um, and it, I, you know, for depending on your population, like calling it sports psychology, people will not feel as bad about if it's, you know, a sports injury, but um, I bring it up to most of my ACL patients now, and it's kind of early in the process. I'll bring it up because they're like missing their season or something like that. And they're totally bummed out. And then as they're getting back to like return to sport time, I bring it up again for particularly for people who have more fear, you know, because it can kind of help you maybe get strategies for getting over the fear. And then the other population I do it a lot in is the um, OCD lesions, just because it's such a like prolonged course, it can be kind of unpredictable timing wise. Um, and they're always like bummed out. You watch over the course of a year, a kid go from like normal happy when you first see him to like the most depressed withdrawn kid ever. So I'll bring it up to at least parents pretty early that that's something that like could be potentially helpful. That's I don't know how many have actually gone and done it. <laughs> <laughs> Those OCD conversations are so hard, though. That's oh, I, I actually brutal. Um, I steal your line every time and tell them, even though it's a tiny little thing, um, it's something that's been developing there for a long, long time, and it's going to take a long, long time to get better. And you know, just laying so much crepe about how long the recovery is going to be. So I, I love the idea of using it for that population. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like Cordelia said, it's loss of, of their identity, you know, that they build their whole personal identity, especially the teenagers and preteens about who they are and what, what they do, that you take that away from them. And to get a good outcome, they're, they're struggling yeah. to put the effort behind it that is needed. So Pam, do you, are, do you um, find yourself recommending it to sort of the non-athletic ACLs as much as the athletic ACLs? You know, just the out of shape person that trips off the curb or whatever? I, I feel like you know, from their standpoint, it's more of a, why do I have to do this? I can do my daily stuff fine. Yeah. So the, where I struggle with that kind of patient is like that end stage therapy where you're trying to take them to the next level, mm -hmm. um, more than just like ADLs and they're totally fine where they are. I just had a patient who uh, was like a college basketball player and you know was devastated by her injury and went through this long rehab and recovered and finally was awesome and then decided she was over basketball and just wanted to go to school to be a hairstylist <laughs> hey she's less likely to tear a graph so yeah, yeah. She <laughs> but she's including that right i mean that's the thing yeah. is, is she may tell you her interest changed but so much of that is that fear of like this was the yeah. worst thing ever i never want to have mm -hmm. to do it again and so yeah that surgery to get them back to sports at the same level you know where they started it doesn't always happen just because it's such a it's such a long haul and it's yeah. possible to get an adolescent to understand that a priori yeah, yeah. 
I, I have a, a couple like fairly high hardcore like soccer players and one recently um you know i think she kind of blamed it on she there's like weird politics with their school and coaches and things like that but like really kind of had no desire to go back to high level soccer whereas when we were first talking about it was like when can i get back as fast as possible so granted as you grow up and go through your high school years obviously interest change to some degree in high school or college interest change but um i agree i think there's probably more fear than people are willing to admit um, all right. Well, speaking of ACL recoveries, let's go to uh, JBJS. There were a few relevant recent articles, none specifically Pete's related, but Pete's relevant. So one was this just recent review of ACL repairs, and it was a combined effort out of Pittsburgh and HSS. As you would expect, the conclusion is somewhat vanilla. The conclusion is that reconstruction is the gold standard and the authors then call for more research on repairs. Um, but there's clearly some underlying enthusiasm for ACL repairs in the paper with some pretty pictures of repair techniques. And, you know, as we've all heard, fans of ACL repair think that maybe as a profession, we sort of were too quick to dismiss ACL repairs. They obviously don't work for everyone, but maybe there is a group of patients that they do work for. And maybe we sort of throughout the baby with the bathwater, and maybe for these really proximal ones, the type one ACLs that are really avulsions off the femur, or even maybe the type twos that are just in the proximal uh, ligament, maybe uh, we should be considering repairs in those. They seem to, you know, reportedly be doing, doing well in some practices. Is anyone here <coughs> following this closely, considering doing ACL repairs, doing ACL repairs? I'll do an ACL repair in a really proximal one, as long as it's not really old and retracted and the tissue quality seems reasonable. And my thinking on this is it's sort of like a meniscus, like in a kid, they have great healing potential. Their tissue quality is good. Once you take it out, you can't put it back. It doesn't grow back just like a meniscus. And so I think for that very tight indication, it's worth trying to repair it rather than reconstruct it. But I think as soon as you start widening those indications, the outcomes are going to start to go down. How are you? So, uh, How am I repairing? Yeah. So like a knee scorpion and you put some sutures through it and then a suture anchor into the anatomic insertion site on the femur. Are you backing it up with an internal brace or anything? I haven't. Uh, I'm not, I don't have a huge volume of those. I mean, I think, I think they're rare. I think it's like when you recognize them, you have to think like, is this one that might be good for repair? But I think the vast majority end up being mid-substance and so they're not it's not really an option but so in the rare times that i've done it i have not backed it up uh i hear you it's rare so you probably don't have like too much of a protocol but how much are you accelerating their uh their recovery i haven't accelerated their recovery so is it still like <laughs> are you still telling them nine to twelve months or whatever you tell them for ACL well i i tell them nine months but i tell them it's not like a cake where like the timer goes off and ding you're ready to go back right you have to have <laughs> Right, you have to have no swelling, you have to have full motion, you have to have equal strength, and then you have to pass, even though we're still working on, on our functional movement screens, like you have to be able to demonstrate that you can protect your knee. Uh, so, and if they, if they hit that sooner, fantastic, but I think I, I, there's no reason to sort of under-promise and over-deliver. I'd, I'd rather clear them at six months, but tell them nine months than the other way around. Yeah, so I, I guess uh, from the and not peds trained world. I'm not as versed on ACL repair, but we do. I do a fair number of multi legs, and we repair PCLs because the reconstructed PCL, admittedly, isn't great. I mean, a lot of patients still are kind of sloppy. But when you're given the option for an ACL, I guess in my eye, uh, it seems 
you have a really good option. We're not necessarily speeding people up until we sort of know exactly who that patient is that it's going to do well in. I, I feel, why am I going to put the patient potentially through a second rehab or potentially through another surgery? I mean, I guess you could say that about retiring any graft, but it's just the ACL seems more predictable. It is more predictable than the outcomes we get with some of the other ligament re- repairs, uh, PCL being the example that comes to mind. Yeah, I was and I've seen some good results with PCL repairs uh, in collegiate level athletes, NFL athletes. I would say in a kid, our, our ACL reconstruction outcomes are not great, right? I mean, there's papers that demonstrate in almost 20%, like the Decker paper, I want to say 2017, JBJS, mm-hmm. at, right? Like almost 20% of those kids, like sure, 90% go back to sports, but 20% re-tear their grafts. So I would not say that we've optimized our outcomes so much in kids after an ACL reconstruction that we can afford to say, well, why don't we try this other thing? Because the thing is, you need to do a revision ACL reconstruction in a kid. The outcomes are even worse than the first ones, which aren't great. If you've done an ACL repair, sort of like I was saying before with the IT band ACL, you haven't burned a graft, you haven't burned a tunnel. You know, you've got so many options available to you. I hear what you're saying. There's time and sort of the, the disappointment. But if you've got that kid who's got good tissue, proximal avulsion that might be amenable to repair, I think it's worth a try because I don't think the outcomes otherwise are so reliable that you would just discard that chance. Yeah, I think I come down sort of somewhere in the middle there. I, I, I do feel like ACL reconstruction is, you know, it's a good it's a good surgery. I feel good about it and I feel less good about the ACL repair, but in the right patient, I think it could make sense. To me, sort of the tipping point is if it's going to be an easier recovery, you know, if we're doing a less morbid surgery and we're sparing them uh, a harder recovery, then maybe it, uh, it makes more sense to, to talk through the family with the risks and benefits of that. Definitely interested to see how the literature progresses and see if we can uh, you know, reliably get them back to sports faster and more easily with a repair for a really proximal rupture. Yeah, I just, um, I'm, I'm like you, Carter, I'm somewhere kind of in the middle. Um, so I worked a little bit with the Bear trial, Martha Murray's uh, bridge enhanced repair. And in my mind, like a repair alone without some kind of biologic enhancement probably is not the answer. There's kind of too much literature that goes against ACL repair. So it's not really a first choice at all for me. But you know, I think if it's one of those really like younger kids where it's almost like the reverse of a steel spine and there's maybe a little bit of periosteum with it that you can sometimes see on the MRI, mm-hmm. um, that to me might be the one that you try it in. But I think it takes a real conversation with the family. It's got to be the right family, right, to take the chance and roll the dice on it. Because I do think you don't burn bridges with tunnels and with graphs, but you burn a bridge with like maybe decreased healing and maybe less reliable stability going back. And the biggest fear that I have about it is if the failure rate rate is just as high or higher, are we potentially subjecting kids to a higher risk of meniscal injury because they're going to have recurrent stability, right? So that's, that's where I can't totally like buy into it. I think there's a little too much showing it doesn't work all that well, but if it's a family that's like, hey, you know, we're willing to risk it if it means we haven't taken something and we haven't burned a bridge yet, we're okay if it, like, as they get back to running and jumping, it's just not going to function uh, and we have to do it because then you've lost, like, six months, right? But 
I think where you start crossing a slippery slope is when they're going back and if they're having an instability event, you know, they have a bucket handle meniscus tear to deal with. Like that's where I start to worry. Totally. I, I think we're all yeah. agreeing. I mean, I think to me, when I talk about tight indications, it's the ones you just said, right? It has to be sort of like the perfect patient in order to do that. I agree. And it's like 0.01% probably of those that exist. But it'll be interesting to see as, as the bear trial progresses through the FDA trials, what comes of that. Yeah, definitely. Let's wrap it up. Thanks so much for joining us, and we'll have more content coming your way soon. So please subscribe and stay tuned.